Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. Okay, my guest today is a freelance sound mixer who has worked on film, television, documentary, corporates, commercials, behind the scenes, and EPK. He's based out of Bournemouth, England. Please welcome Glenn Yard. Uh, Hello, Michael. Hello. How are you? Thanks for being here, Glenn. How was that intro? Yeah, super. It sounds like I've done a lot of stuff. That was just this week, the, the stuff that you said. That's all just this week. That's how busy I am. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Glenn, let's get right down to it. When you're working as a production sound mixer on set, tell us what's in your audio kit. So give us a rundown of your mixer, your recorder, preferred mics, and everything in between. Yeah, sure. Well, having listened to like some of your other podcasts and stuff, I've kind of got sort of nothing mind-blowing kit-wise I sort of tend to follow the crowd a fair bit so I know a lot of sound people sort of identical kits with the kind of stuff that I'm up to but I've got a Sound Devices 664 which um, I've been using I've had for about five years coming up to five years now and that's sort of done me good and I know there's lots of new things always popping up I mean like this week uh, was it the 888's been popping up and all that kind of stuff but um it's all money, isn't it? And uh, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a late adopter, so I, t- I take it slow and steady. But yeah, so the 664, and yeah, that's that's totally stood me in good stead sort of over that past five years. Rock solid, lots of ins and outs, and yeah, 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 that's been good for me. All right. And uh, what kind of uh, microphones do you like to use? Uh, well, for shotgun mics, like I say, still quite bare bones, but... Um, I stick with a 416, Sennheiser 416 most of the time. I've got a pair of those when I'm doing like EPK stuff or sit down interviews and I've got multiple people. I can stick a couple of booms over them and stuff like that. So I have like a matched, I guess a matched pair of 416s. But yeah, that's my sort of go-to weapon of choice, I guess. And like I use it all the time and pretty much for everything. And I know there's, again, there's lots of options out there and lots of different things, but yeah, I'm kind of uh, a creature of routine. Um, I do have a, a 50, an MKH 50, but I don't really tend to break that out too often sometimes. Sort of depends on sort of background noise and the location and those kind of things. But yeah, I rock solid, pretty much stick with the 416. And how about your wireless? So I've got a lot of Sennheiser G3s. I've got loads of them, way too many. And I use them as hops and IEMs, but I also use them as personal mics as well on the body and stuff. So those are like my go-to ones. But when the job has, when I can get the appropriate kit hire money or like the job is a bigger one, I kind of fluctuate. So I hire kit in quite a bit. So I've got places that I use sort of regularly. And so it's not really any bother for me to sort of hire something in. So I use Lectros. I've used A10s as a wireless boom. 
and I've used WYSIWYGON stuff, but I don't actually own them. I always sort of hire them in. And, you know, it, it can be a little bit annoying sometimes not having them right to hand, but um, sort of like, because uh, I do a lot of corporate stuff and like sometimes when those companies, like I guess like sometimes sound is kind of, expected and you kind of some companies in a weird way you have to kind of like educate them on the value of equipment and all that kind of stuff so if i definitely have to hire that wireless booming or definitely have to hire in some whizzy comms or something like that to like you know maybe do some like car to car stuff or things like that then it kind of shows that company what your worth is instead of just turning obviously you'll get paid for your kit hire but if you can show them that you need this and you need that i don't know that's kind of how i've been working with it but i'm very close to making a big boy radio purchase and i've been meaning to do it in like sort of the past year or so but you know it's a money thing and it's a big it's a big outlay so but sometime in the next six months i am going to be sort of making a purchase for some slightly more solid um, radios. Okay. Now, having used Electrosonic and Wizicom, and uh, what, what's been your favorite so far? I mean, there's probably lots more to go into. Like, there's probably lots of technical stuff that I, but just kind of using them sort of quickly and in passing and stuff like that. I really like the the Wizicoms. I like the the wideband aspect of it, and I like the size of them. And I think they're quite easy to handle once you've got your head around it. I always sort of think about different radio kits is a bit like um it's like playing a video game on the playstation and then flipping over to the xbox like the games are the same but the controllers are slightly different so you have to kind of get your head around that a little bit which is i guess kind of part of the fun so i like the WYSICOMs. the electros i think maybe people have mentioned it on here before like they do get quite hot and like sometimes when i've used them i'm, I'm surprised by the heat on them so when like making a consideration about purchase or something that always sort of springs into my mind. I know they are rock solid, really good, and everyone uses them. But um, I guess like I'm erring towards the WYSIWYGOMs at the minute. Uh, the A10s I've only used on a, a wireless boom, so I haven't really used them uh, as uh, personal mics, uh, whack on people, whack the packs on people. So still thinking about it. I think I need to do maybe like a proper sit down. I need to do a day of sitting down, reading lots of stuff, watching lots of stuff and making, uh, and then searching out a deal, I guess. I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but on the G3s I use on actors, etc., I've had them modified with the SMA uh, whip antenna. So they've got better antennas and you can take them on and off. Supposedly they do improve the range, maybe, but they're definitely better than the original antennas that come with the G3s, which are sort of liable to, you know, bend and all that kind of stuff. So, and also you can pack them away a bit better. So I like to think that I'm still using G3s a lot, but they're slightly souped up just a little bit. But oh, That's good. Yeah, I have, uh, I have some G3s and G4s as well. Now, did you do the modification yourself? No, uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, there's lots of, um, uh, I probably could do an advert or something like that, but there's lots of, I mean, probably the same way you are. Like, uh, there's lots of, uh, people that could do those modifications and cable makers and stuff like that. I think it timed out like when I actually did it like a year, a couple of years ago that I was working, I had a break to, for a holiday to actually go away. And then when I came back, I was straight back to work. 
So I think just for convenience, I mean, obviously I could have done it myself, but because I was going away for that week, it was the person who did them was good enough to do them in that week, week gap. So when I, so I could send them away, go away and then come back and then I'm straight back into using them. So I probably could have spent, you know, for me, probably like six months working out how to do it and buying all the wrong stuff and making a mess of it. So I let someone else do it instead. Yeah, I don't want to mess up my mics either. So I just like, uh, let's, somebody that's really good at this. I was never, uh, I mean, I built, you know, I would build uh, XLR cables and things like that. But when you really want to get in there and get some, some good work done, there's a lot of people that are better than, than my, mm. <laughs> better than my skills. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I, I think you're right. Like I'd like to get into that more, but it's something I haven't. I don't know if you like me, but I'm always second guessing myself a little bit. And especially with, you know, if you start thinking about kit breaking down on set and while you're on the job and like, have I got enough backup stuff? Have I got a backup recorder? Have I got a backup mic and stuff like that? The very idea of me having done my own mods on some mic packs and then failing halfway for a shoot, I'd, I'd feel very, I'd feel very angry at myself. I'd be sad. <laughs> so at least I can blame someone else if, um, they go wrong, but they won't. Everything's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, what kind of uh, lavalier mics do you like to use? Um, I pretty much exclusively use the COS 11s. Yeah, I like, uh, they seem to match the, the 416 pretty well. And obviously they're good to hide and there's lots of sort of mounts and lots of lots of stuff for them. I do have trams. I haven't used, I haven't used them for like years, really. Oh, it seems like a, seems like years. Um, I've got a few uh, Countryman B sixes in different colours, in black and white and beige and stuff. And so, I haven't used them much recently. But I used to use them a lot in corporate stuff. I always used to love like you know sneaking it out of a buttonhole or something like that. And so, they're really good for that. But yeah, so Cos Eleven's pretty much. What kind of time code boxes do you like to use? Uh, so I've got an original set of uh, Tentacle Sync boxes. I know they've got the newer versions with the Bluetooth and all that kind of stuff, but so I guess I must have had them probably around the same time as I've got the 664. I've never had any problems with them, uh, touch wood. And yeah, for the kind of stuff that I do, they're perfect. They're small, they're lightweight, camera people like them crews and camera people and camera assistants they're like really used to those little boxes now and like people love them i've used lockets before uh, sort of a few years ago and stuff like that but um yeah i've just kind of stuck with those tentacles and i haven't had any problems so all right. Yeah, I've got some of the original tentacles too. Actually, the other day I went to to turn one on, and one of them, after being charged, it wouldn't it wouldn't come on. So I'm like, not quite sure why. And I was like, okay, I, I plugged it in and tried to turn it on. I tried. So I, I reached out to Tentacle. Hopefully, they'll let me know what's what's going on. I said, is there a way I can factory reset this or you know replace this battery myself? Yeah, the the battery is, has got a you know obviously it's got a time span, hasn't it? So if you have them, uh, but yeah that's a worry but i've got like um i've got four of them so hopefully i've always got enough to back myself up all right have you ever had any issues with them no no i don't think so uh, sometimes it's more camera related than the actual tentacle but nothing bad but just kind of in terms of like rebooting a camera and then once you power it back up it takes it and everything's fine so a little bit of that i guess the sometimes the velcro sticks too well to the camera and you feel like you're actually going to wrench the shell off the tentacle. 
apart from that, yeah, I love them. They come with some stickers. They come in nice little bags. So they've done it all right for me. Yeah, yeah. I I had it on a on a digital slate, and it, it almost mm. like uh, I had to increase the level on the tentacle because it's almost like it wasn't enough. And the slate the slate was kind of doing weird numbers and stuff every now and then. I was like, that's that's strange. Mm-hmm. So I just cranked it up to more closer to line level, and and then it was and yeah, then it was yeah, fine. Yeah. So. I wonder if that is a, because you know the sort of, that I suppose that original set specifically were for like DSLR work, aren't they? So maybe they're not too overpowered. So nah, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I can make stuff up all day. <laughs> no, I hear you. Though. Well, uh, let's let's talk about some of the projects you've worked on. Uh, there was a horror TV series called Shelley. Tell us about that one. Yeah, sure. Shelley is a, there's been a couple of series of it. So there's a, it's a US based company called Crypt TV. And they seem to be like, um, you know, the way that teenagers and those young folks, how they're consuming, you know, media and things like that. Short form seems to be, a, a, you know, a, a growing thing. And I know there's via a company I work with that produced this horror series like Facebook watch and um, Spielberg's coming out with something next year, all this short form content. So you're basically still making a series or a, uh, a film, but it's split up into all these parts. So to sort of keep the kids hooked, but um, so it's part of um, the crypt TV, like sort of monster universe. So they've been going a few years and they have a lot of these episodic sort of creature features. And I'm not really sure how the company I work with got involved, but um, we are the, I think we're the only UK production company that is working on anything for Crypt TV. So everything else is produced in the US. So that's a bit unusual. And aside from Shelley, we did a further one, a new series this year called Camp Monster, which means something, nothing rude, but it means it has different connotations in the UK. So obviously that was written by a US writer and it's very um I'm talking about a completely different thing now but I'll, I'll carry on but um it's a very American script it's set at like a, a kid's summer camp and it's very sort of classically sort of written as like a stand by me thing but they gave the UK company to produce it so we had to replicate a US uh, summer camp in the UK uh, where I live is not too far from the coast but also not too far from a big forest called the New Forest and it's it's beautiful and very leafy and there was a summer camp in there what I'm getting at is that's probably what's the unusual thing about a UK company producing stuff for a US company and no other UK companies doing it it's like oh why have they given us the American one to do anyway Shelley is um uh, so there's two series. I think there's three to four episodes in each series, and each episode is probably about like four or five minutes long. And they're kind of like kill of the week kind of thing. So you set up your characters, you your monster mystery monster is slowly emerging, and then there's like a a kill at the end. So that's your cliffhanger. So you have like four characters, and each one slowly gets killed, and it's all very twisty turny. And um, Brazilian teenagers seem to really like it. Um, I think it's got like, I mean, I'd have to have a look, but like it's done in terms of views and stuff like that, if that's important, um, it's done millions, you know, it's into its millions of views. So for that company, you know, a, a sort of medium sized production company based on the South coast of, uh, the UK, that's quite a, that's quite a big deal for them. And it's done really well for them, I think. 
Now, did you do location work or just post? Uh, yeah, so I did location and posts. Okay. So, um, yeah, I do a lot of that because I sort of work in, I don't really do like big films or TV really, sort of. Um, I've reached sort of a funny little niche in my career where a lot of the times I will do location and posts. I think once you sort of get up into the big stuff, that's very, very rare because you're spreading yourself way too thin. But stuff where it's kind of like mid to low budget, you know, and they're keeping the crew smaller and stuff like that. And I think it's it's helpful for those companies and the people I work for. And like, I really like it. Like, um, you know, sometimes when you're just doing location uh, sounds, like you don't know what's going to happen to it. I mean, obviously everyone's going to do their best work and stuff like that. But there's lots of times when I've just done the location sounds and not that I'm a perfectionist by any, any stretch, but like... Um, you'll see the final thing and you're just like, ah, just, I know there was another line or there was something clearer oh, or they could have just got rid of that. You know, something that there's always some one little thing that niggles me. Um, so the great thing about doing location and post is that you can, you're beating those things to the punch before you even, you know that like, oh, they, their radios were good, but that one not so great, but I know I can fix that. And it's really, I don't know, it feels sort of empowering to be able to do that. It's like, I know I can do this, so it's it's good. And it it gives me a little bit more confidence on set, I guess, because you know that you can fix stuff if you need to. But yeah, so uh, yeah, it, I did the location sounds. I had an assistant on that. Um, I quite liked the first series because it was all set indoors. And we filmed in like uh, this like uh, posh girls boarding school that wasn't too far away from us. That I'd never, it was like... Uh, half an hour away from me and I'd driven past that road you know hundreds of times but I had no idea that there was this super posh girls boarding school down there but the thing I liked about it is they had the central heating on so even though it was really cold outside it was a really nice warm location which is always a big win for me especially with night shoots and stuff but yeah that was a fun shoot that was a while ago but um I can't think of any real problems or well what was the do you remember the the miking setup on all that yeah, sure. Well, it's uh, we didn't really do any double booming or stuff because they're all quite short there, and also because they're sort of intended for like a global audience. I remember the writers and producers saying as they were sort of writing it and stuff like every time they get notes about it, it was less dialogue because it just means more subtitles or like if it's too dialogue heavy, then maybe a certain country you know and it's in an english accent or a, an american accent maybe you know the sort of more visual for these horror shorts it seemed the better not to say no one didn't talk lots of people spoke but um yeah it was the 416 and everyone was i mean it's standard now that everyone wears a radio pretty much i kind of like sticking them on everyone anyway just because you never know what nice little bits of foley or like stuff like that or you know sometimes I've used actors as almost like plant mics because it's like, I know she's not going to say anything in this bit, but she can keep that wire on because the person two people down is going to be screaming. So I'm getting a different perspective on that scream. So that's quite, quite good. Um, there was a little section in the first episode of that series where um, it's like a school prom, school prom reunion thing. And so we kind of did it live in the room. So someone, there's, I had a, a wireless, wireless handheld mic and we were pumping music through. And the uh, 
the characters that are at the party, they're having a conversation, the conversation is broken up by someone going on stage and speaking and doing a big announcement. And so kind of played it like a like a proper scene, which was quite quite nice. And it was so we recorded the, I guess, the diegetic sound, or does that just apply to music, but just like the real life sound of the wireless through the PA system at this boarding school. So that was quite nice. Felt like I was actually doing something. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, having done both location and post, what kind of advice could you share with maybe some of our listeners that what they could do better on set that would help in post? It's a tricky one, really, because you're getting a lot of stuff. If you're not directly involved in location, you're just getting the post stuff, then it's always coming through the picture editor a lot of the time if you're doing like the sound design and the foley and the mix and you're doing it as a one-man band kind of thing you'll be getting it via the editor and like you never know with some editors like how they or you know the location stuff might be fantastic but i know editors that will delete iso tracks and like work from the mix and then you'll get that and then you've got to reconform everything and like and so it's, sometimes it's those niggly things that isn't locations for all oh, has nothing to do with location but it's kind of it's sort of related to it when you're getting it in post so it does feel like oh this feels like a mess or like why is or like when editors sub in alternate takes but then you don't know what the original take was and but that is yeah that's nothing to do with the location team at all but um I don't know really like sound notes are always good I know obviously it's a, a standard but you'd be surprised sometimes sort of how little there is like especially if there's a, a sound team if it was like a someone running solo then I wouldn't expect much really but sometimes you'll get like sound notes that are, you know there's nothing to them really and even just like a little bit of like this was a good one or you know sometimes you'll get wild lines being recorded that you that you don't know about there was a thing I did recently, actually. It was a, just did the edit of it. It was a corporate thing, corporate commercially thing. I won't go into too much detail just because I'm not naming and shaming or anything, but it was filmed in a restaurant and a big glassy restaurant, big glassy reflective restaurant. And everyone's wearing wires and stuff like that. But I knew the director, so I did mention to it afterwards and he wasn't sure why, but they had all the fridges and vents were still on and they were so, because it's this big glassy restaurant with like you know how restaurants these days have open kitchens and stuff like that so you can see what everything's going on and all that and so all those vents and so it was quite difficult to dig that dialogue out sometimes without losing some of it and like i guess like it's different when you're there on the day isn't it it's a bit like a quiz show isn't it like you watch a quiz show and it's like i could do that but then when you're actually there it's like maybe you can't turn those vents off or like maybe you've turned the wrong fridges off and you've made a water pour out of stuff or i don't know there's always something going on or you can't so recently that was kind of one it's like oh but you don't know the circumstances do you sometimes so that's true. I, I've been trying to do more wild lines. Um, we actually, mm. we did a, a commercial. It was like a PSA for, um, I think it was World AIDS Day. And we were filming at this bar, but it was like the bar was open and we had our, our actor kind of sitting in the middle of all these people and it was so loud and you could hardly yeah. hear him. And he was, I was trying to get him to, you know, kind of 
bring up the energy level a little bit, but just to give a little more, but we ended up going and sitting in the production truck and re-recording yeah. all of his audio. And that's what we ended up mm-hmm. using. And I ended up doing the, the audio work on that. So I was able to, mm-hmm. and, and so it was great. You know, you can, you had a nice controlled environment. So if we can always yeah, step totally. off set somewhere and do, do wild lines somewhere else, you know, just as a backup, you know, that, that really helps mm-hmm. a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. I love getting all that stuff. And like, if you can get a full performance, that's great, isn't it? But I'm always one for like, I guess, because like lots of horror stuff, but always lots of breaths and lots of like, they call them efforts, don't they? Lots of like, like grunts and stuff like that. I always try if we, you know, if I can talk to a first AD or or an AD or whatever and see if I can get a little bit of time to get those extra bits and bobs, then yeah, it's always, always super helpful. I mean, I did something very similar. I worked on a a commercial broadcast commercial a few months ago and there was a uk version also an italian version so they were very big on the pronunciation because they were mixing british and italian actors with different accents and stuff it was sort of a bit confusing kind of like forcing a uk actress to do just throwing her some Italian and her having to nail it. And then like uh, the translation guy kind of getting a bit, a bit heated with her cause she wasn't nailing it and stuff like that. But we did, I made sure that we did lots of wild stuff for that. Cause I knew that that was all going to come back and sort of bite them in a bum potentially just cause of those specific kind of like Italian, the Italian flow of some of those words. And, and because like commercials, a lot of the time don't have much dialogue. So this was quite, I mean, it wasn't dialogue heavy, but every small scene in the advert had a catchphrase or repeated phrase. So it was it was very important to get all that wild stuff. And also, again, it makes it look like you're doing something like, oh, yeah, we should. Uh, yeah, we definitely need to. Instead of standing silently in the corner, just rubbing your face, do that instead. <laughs> Those are good. Well, let's uh, let's talk about uh, you worked on another feature called K-Shop and it, it was kind of a complicated yeah. shoot. So tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, I really like the film and it turned out really well. And I kind of know the producers and directors and um, it's got some like really good world building in it and, has, you know, it's got some substance to it. But it, basically the, the sort of pitch of it is that it's it's kind of like a Sweeney Todd kind of death wish kind of thing, but based in a, a kebab shop, like, uh, like a takeaway fast food place in uh, the UK. So a lot of, um, so where I live, and a lot of towns around the UK on a Saturday night, lots of like uh, stag parties and big groups of lads and girls and stuff like that, just um, behaving very badly and a lot of vomiting and all that kind of stuff. So it's a film about the son of a kebab shop owner who inherits the shop and his father dies in sort of bad circumstances. And so he slowly turns and turns the tables on all the horrible drunks and people vomiting and anyway it's good it's just well worth uh, seeking out um but yeah the location of it was tricky like i wasn't involved that early so i only really got involved or said i'd do it like a i don't know like a few weeks before like a month maximum but i was sort of concerned about the location because it all like predominantly takes place in a kebab shop. And so to begin with, they were going to build a kebab shop set sort of out of town on like an industrial unit. So away from like lots of noise and stuff like that. I was like, oh, great, that'd be good. But then there was like a actual shop unit in town that was up for lease and it had a really good basement. So it had a good basement for the killer 
to go and do his stuff downstairs. So I think that's why they picked it. But this like shop unit was on, on like one of the busiest roundabouts in town that constant buses, constant taxis, even though we we're on night shoots, you know, because it's a town, those buses are constantly going and stuff like that. And it was just like, and the front of the shop that you would always kind of be, I think the value of it for them was that you could see the town outside. You couldn't really, but you'd see the lights of cars and sort of natural street lighting, I guess. So that was a positive for them. But for me, it was all giant, single-paned windows. So reflections were awful. The glass was thin, and it was like, ugh. ugh. So it was, it was tricky from that point of view. And then because it was made to look like a, a working kebab shop, and so obviously we had like actors behind the, the till and uh, you know fake cooking stuff, and we had actors dressed as customers, like, constantly have people walking in you know and people that are slightly worse for wear and have had a drink and stuff and as sharp maybe it's like oh no look look at all this camera equipment it's like and then they carry on ordering whatever they want and we never had one anyone particularly aggressive but it was pretty constant and it got to a point where it was like a, a regular thing so like one night someone kind of stomped on in and we kind of just like oh yeah it's one of our regulars but it turned out it was like a this slowly swarmed. It was like a mob of kebab shop owners, local kebab shop owners, that were angry about the film. They'd heard about the film. They'd read about it in like the local paper. And so, like I say, the film has actually got a bit of nuance and is actually on the side of the kebab shop owner and what these takeaway places have to face every night, night after night. But when you read like the strap line, it's like kebab shop owner kills people, turns them into kebabs, blah, blah, blah. It sounds, and so they were, they, they'd heard about this and they, they stormed the building and like, they like actually kind of waded in and like the producer told everyone to go and hide in the basement downstairs. And so um, a lot of them were Turkish. And so our lead actor, he could speak Turkish. So he went outside and like, talk to them and calm them down but then it was really weird it's kind of i don't know it went all strange like they were like oh we're going to come back every night unless you make some changes to the film and so the producer had to sit down with i don't know if they ever actually did but like it was like what is happening here and like the one thing i really regret that that i did is that i didn't carry on recording when the lead actor went outside because like when it all kicked off we cut and we went downstairs but i you know, his radio was still on, so I should have, maybe just for insurance sake, maybe if, if something bad happened to him, but I was like, oh, I wish I'd carried on recording that, because that's quite good fun, isn't it? I think it was because the, the Turkish characters had some backstories, some actual sort of history that actually happened in Turkey and, like, the wars and stuff like that. So that was kind of contained in the scripts, and that's what gave it a bit of sort of nuance and subtlety instead of just, like, kill, kill, kill. But they didn't like that and sort of... It's tricky, isn't it? It's like, well, we're making a film and you're just like a big group of kebab shop owners. You can't really tell us how to make our film. But, you know, so I think they had to change the lead character's name maybe and like say, you know, make his, not country of origin, but like where he came from uh, slightly different. I don't know. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> That's funny though. Post-wise, you worked on a, I guess you worked on an extreme sports series featuring a world-famous skateboarder. And I, I understand they didn't record any location sound. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so it was just uh, one episode. And it wasn't like, I mean, I wasn't on a location shoot, so I don't know actually what happened. So it wasn't a mistake or anything. They kind of did it on purpose. I think a lot of it had to do is that they were filming lots of slow-mo stuff. 
And so I guess they were in the frame of mind of that. But actually, the actual stuff between the interviews with the skateboarder, um, yeah, that is like, you know, actual speed footage. So the director, I knew the director and he was quite keen to, he was like, I like this, but it would be better if we have some actual sound of the skateboard. And I was like, yes, that is a good idea. So he kind of passed it on to me. So I was more than happy to do it because, um, yeah, like post-wise, um, I do lots of dialogue editing, sound effects editing, mixing, all that kind of stuff. But I do try and sort of specialise a little bit more in Foley sometimes. I've got a, a Foley room with pits and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sort of quite into that. So, yeah, the clips of him skateboarding weren't, weren't massively long. I think they were like sort of bursts of like 15 to 30 seconds kind of thing. So... And I think there was only a couple of times where it was like continuous movements like throughout a skate park. I dropped my little boy off at the school and then there's a skate park just down the road from me. And like, I haven't skateboarded for like, I don't know, like 25 years. And even when I did skateboard, I was terrible. And so I just thought I'd give it a go on my own. So I didn't even have someone holding the sound kit or, so I basically did it on my own and it went quite well, actually, like the actual recording of it. And I was surprised how I kind of just wanted to get lots of those passes and those kind of like, there's no pun, but kind of like the ramping up of the, the sound of the wheels onto the thing. So if I could get like short passes of everything, then I could build that into the moves and things like that and lots of scrape and stuff like that. So I guess like don't get the impression that I was properly skateboarding around waving a boom around at the same time it was all very fragmented but yeah i just popped along my local skate park for like an hour and got very sweaty and got lots of funny looks from passing dog walkers and it's like why is that man doing that why is that six foot four man <laughs> skateboarding around on like a rainy tuesday morning but it, it worked out really well and i'm i'm really pleased with how they turned out and uh yeah the powers of social media like hashtag the the actual skateboard and I got like a thumbs up or whatever from him. So it's like, oh yeah, job done, I guess. Oh, that's good. Tell us a little bit about Treehouse Digital. Yeah, sure. So they're uh, a local company I work with. So don't get me wrong, I work all over the place, but um, I've known them for a, a long time. So they're a, a group of friends who all kind of do different things, produce, write, direct. Uh, they've got editors there and VFX people, and they formed a company sort of, I don't know, in the past few years, like maybe five years. And they've got really nice premises it's very much like um the ghostbusters fire station it's like a big winding staircase and like two levels and so that is where i've got my foley room so when they moved in there they had extra space too much space and they're like do you want a room i was like yeah okay and so that's what i turned into my foley room so it's a bit ragtag but it does the job and there was um so it's it's really good for foley because there's running water in there there's sinks and taps and that so that's proved useful and there's lots of storage space but there was like um there wasn't any plumbing for it but there was two toilet cubicles two toilet stalls so i knocked the wall through got rid of the stuff on the floor put a roof on it and then padded it out and i've turned that into a voiceover booth so they use that i use that and so in amongst all the other stuff i do i do some voiceover recording and i've been recording like i've got some audio books coming up and so it gets some use and it's good because it's a, a little bit of value for that company and that's nice for them to so I don't pay any rent or anything it's good but basically anything they do that requires sound I'm not on a retainer or anything but I do pretty much everything they do so that 
Shelley, the horror series that was for them. And yeah, they do like a mix of sort of corporate and sort of narrative stuff, but they're trying to sort of push the narrative stuff a bit more in a, in a brand. There's lots of sort of branded content kind of thing where it's like a, it's got a drama element, but it is for a company or for a, a product and it's not strictly a commercial anyway that's kind of the way they're doing so it's nice to be on board with an actual as a freelancer nice to be on board with an actual company and know that like oh if they do something i do something so that's a that's a nice place to be really yeah that's great well now how did you get started in production sound i went to art college and uh i was thinking about earlier but i probably spent like eight years at art college so i should be like a doctor of art or something but like um i did uh sort of traditional art courses so i did like they call them a i don't even know if they're called a levels anymore over here because it was such a long time ago but a two-year course doing like regular art and all that kind of stuff and then specialized a little bit and did a year-long photography course and then the next course i did was this two-year course uh it's an audio visual production course and so it's one of those ones where you could do everything and anything and like everyone on the course was really nice and you know i've still got friends from that course and i learned loads and it was really good fun and i did do a fair amount of sounds and i'm still very much actually we had a really good sound teacher it was all more studio based and it was kind of he was more music minded but we were able to get in and use the desks and you know we cut on quarter inch tape and stuff like that and made radio plays and things like that so that was good and then after that i wasn't really sure what i was going to do but in the same so in bournemouth the um there's a university and an arts university and they've both got film courses and TV courses. There's a lot of lot of room if you want to do something in in the media and those kind of things. And it's all got a lot bigger, but um, there's a film degree course. So that's the next one on from the one I would have been doing. And that was another three years. So I did that course and that's fine. And it's got a good reputation, but I, can, I can't say I really learned much on it. But that was the course that kind of I, uh, to get onto that course, I had to specialize in sound. I wanted to kind of specialize in sound, but it was kind of like, okay, I'll do it. And that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to do sound. Cause I guess, uh, I'm enjoying it in like, uh, on those sort of productions on that previous course, but it was kind of a hobbyist kind of thing. But yeah, going onto that course, it's like, right, I'm going to do this and sort of take a swing at it and see how it goes. Because I was interested in other stuff, like um, because of the art courses and stuff, I've always been quite arty. So I was kind of thought like, oh, production designer, that's kind of something in the media somewhere. But the thing with that degree course, they kind of ask for your specialism, but the first year of it is a foundation course. So you're doing, I was redoing a lot of stuff that I'd already done. So um. I went along with it and I completed the course the whole three years and I got my degree and I got to wear the hat and everything. But um, concurrent to doing that course, some guys that were a couple of years above me on my previous course, this is complicated, isn't it? They were making a low budget feature film on 16 millimeter. And so they were filming a section and then he raised a bit more money for some film and stuff like that. And sort of by the by, they had an original sound man. He kind of disappeared. And then I kind of just sort of slipped in there and sort of became friends with them and stuff like that. So while I wasn't learning much on the degree course, the making of this low budget indie is where I learned pretty much everything, really. It was, you know, I had to get the kit together and it was very ramshackle, but I was using it and finding out its quirks. Whereas on the degree course, 
it was always really difficult to get equipment out you need a a project number and and like so like there was a number of times where because we were recording on dat machines and stuff like that and like i'd never really used those before like these were days when we were like like i say recording on tape or mini disc recorders and all those kind of things i remember like you know people just dropping off the kit from a previous project that i'd never even seen and never even touched i'm just just like so there wasn't really you know, I was paying to be on a course. I wasn't really learning that much, really. You're kind of learning it as you go. So I kind of learned all the stuff that I, you know, that sort of solid basis and sort of my enjoyment in sound, I guess, was from that that film. And so they kind of ended at the same time. So my degree course ended and then we finished the film. And then the, the film did all right, actually. It did quite well. It sort of played sort of globally and it was in Montreal and some other film festivals and it got released on, I guess this was the heyday of like horror on DVD and that kind of thing. And it got like a two disc set and got commentaries and all kinds of stuff. So it did really well. And it was a good, felt like a good piece of work. It's like this it had a physical release and it was like, I've done this and we've all done it. And, you know, you put a lot of work into it. And it, it felt a bit like the sort of, kick up the ass that you needed to be like right i'm into this and i'm going to carry on with it and so i did the post with that as well so like in the uk i suppose you've got it probably in the us as well but like you live outside of london you do a course and then most people move to london because that's where the majority of like the tv and film jobs are i guess and i was going to go to london i kind of did a little stint there but the director of the low budget film, we needed to do the post. And he was like, you should do the post. And I was like, yeah, I should do the post. So I basically came back home and did the post. And it took quite a while. I did it all on my own. But like I say, it had value when it was released. And it's like, yeah, I can do that and I can do that. And so I think that sort of carved out my thing of sort of being outside of London and sort of, sort of plowing my own field of like, I do location, I do post, I do film. I do, you know, you end up doing a little bit of everything and you do enough of it and it's like, oh, I've got a career. That's good. Good. That's Yeah, that's great. Now, you don't have to mention any names, but what was your worst onset experience? Probably my worst onset experience always come from within me, probably sort of like uh, sort of doubting yourself a little bit or being frustrated or, I mean, I've never been shouted at and I've never had nothing like that. And I think there was a, there was an actor on a thing I was working on. I'll keep this quite vague. And it's something or nothing, really. But like, sometimes you've got that thing with whether like an actor is like, how method are they? Or how much are they in character? Because you get a lot, lot of actors and actresses who are like super chatty. And then as soon as it's action, they change. And it's like, that is very impressive. But you do get people and like, you, you know, you probably would, wouldn't you, to get into character. And there's a, but like, um, there's a guy with a, an actor, like a leadish actor on a thing I was working on. And uh, we mic'd him up and he was all good to go. And then he had a sudden costume change. And I think at his own behest and it was starchy and it was like, he ended up putting like a sort of like waistcoat on and like a sort of, you know suit jacket. And it just, it totally went against how we wired him up originally. And so time was tight as it always is. And so we had to, rewire and so because of the starches stuff and so this is a, a a b6 thing so we exposed the b6 i had a black one and he was wearing under like the waistcoat he was wearing like a, a black kind of god i, don't know, I guess like a, 
sort of slightly turtlenecky turtleneck sort of jumper. So with um, one of the costume assistants, we sort of rewired. So basically, I just had to get him to stand still and like lift his head and like I explained to him what we were doing and stuff. And like, but because we had to like make a slight incision in the turtleneck and like pop it out and like it was it was really good and it totally worked and you couldn't see it and it was a, a good a good change but he was just very impatient with it with it and like we were only like halfway through it and it didn't take that long but he I thought he was shouting at someone across the room or I don't know really but he just like I don't even can't really remember what he said but it was like you know it basically was why is this taking so long but he wasn't acknowledging that he wasn't like looking at us or as you know and I threw off uh, a sake kind of come back or like I hope he finds this funny or you know try and temper it with like some humor but he wasn't into it and he was like a proper grouch on it I was just like oh it just felt like you'd hadn't been a verbally attacked but just like oh I'm trying to do I'm trying to help you if I don't do this you won't sound very good and obviously you're not going to say that to him because what does he care but it's just like oh oh why just be nice to me I'm being nice I don't know that's probably the word that's not bad at all a man shouted over my head that's what happened that's not that bad we had a good one on a I was working on this Halloween short. It's about these kids breaking into a, a, a candy store, I guess, on Halloween. And like the candy store is run by, uh, they got this really good elderly German actress. And she was really good and very like sort of evil dead kind of hag without being an evil dead hag. And she was like cackly and stuff like that. And so when the kids are creeping out of the candy shop, she wakes up and she grabs a shotgun. And so her shot was, um, the shot that we were doing, it was her like, whipping around a corner and then like the camera was pushing in, but she was also sort of moving into it as well. So it was like this moving is this big close up with her holding a shotgun, but she had to do like a sort of not a run up, but like she had to kind of move into it. And she was very uh, limber and agile and she's very nice and friendly. And like, we're all sort of sat outside the set and the director's got headphones and he calls action. And like, I just hear the biggest like duck quack farts I've ever heard and because it was so clear and so, like, I thought it was like the producer, the producer was, I was sat down and the producer was stood next to me. I thought the producer had, like, farted right next to me. But it was the actress. I was, like, so surprised. I looked at the director and he was doing, like, the same face. We were, like, both shocked that she, but then she carried on the shot and we were, like, and the director's like, Cut, I think we got what we need there. And then she left the room and, like, not being mean, but, like, everyone, like, weed themselves with laughter and then we were watching bits back later and like you know you try and think like when's the the hardest i'd ever laughed and it all gets infectious and you weep with laughter and all that and we were just watching it back and forth and it was just so it's so brilliant it's you know i definitely want it shown at my funeral because it was such an amazing such a good fart that was good that's a good one to temper the bad one yeah that's great well, Glenn, if, if some of our listeners wanted to get into location sound, what kind of advice would you give them? It just kind of depends what you want to do. Like, I think like when you're at film school, obviously the impetus is to get into film, isn't it? Like, I want to work on a James Bond film, stuff like that. So I guess where I've ended up or where I'm up, where I've ended up at the moment, kind of doing bits of everything, sometimes that doesn't sort of work with what those people who get in touch with me want to do. They want to work on those big films. It's like, there's like definitely a, there's a structure to that, isn't there? Becoming like a, an assistant, a second assistant, a first assistant, a boom op and blah, blah, blah. There's a, there's a line there. And like, it's all about getting in with the right mixer and stuff like that. And like, if they're looking to do that, like 
with me i'm not really working in those circles necessarily so but it's just to keep going i guess like before i had a solid and regular set of clients and work and stuff like that you know i've been doing it for a while it's only like in the past sort of you know sort of 10 years or so that it's become solid enough that it is my main income and you know i do all right out of it and everything's everything's fine it took me a long time to get there and that's not like massive effort all the time i work lots of different jobs i didn't just come straight out of uni and then go straight into whatever like I worked in factories, I worked at my local council, I worked with my brother, and all that time I was doing little sound jobs here and there or doing a, a short film for free or doing... So it all sort of sort of snowballed, I guess, instead of there's no instant fix or there wasn't for me. And, like, you know, there's lots of talk about rates and all those kind of things, but, like, when you're starting out, I think it's important that you do those sort of free things and do those short films and all that kind of stuff that's where you sort of develop relationships and like you know the director of the first film i worked on that low budget film on 16 mil you know i still work with him from time to time and like all those shorts and low budget indies i've worked on i still work with those directors and sometimes those camera guys so you know that's probably a 10-year thing in itself like doing all those things and so if you can get in like a you know, a, a facilities house in the city or like become an assistant to a, a bigger mixer, then that's that's great. But those those places are sort of few and far between. So if you want to, it just, so yeah, it just takes time, I guess. And just depends how impatient you are. I mean, like when I was at college, to have Pro Tools at home was a big deal because back then you needed lots of hard, you know, the hardware side of it. But now it's just a, it's just a program just having that but now you know everyone's got everything straight away so like there's all this equipment and all this new stuff and like if you're willing to pay on it pay, you could come out of university and have a foot if you want to pay out on it and get like a zero interest credit card get it all pay it off you've got it but i don't know experience and sort of relationships it's a big big part of this and like any job really like i always think like if i've got a job where i'm going away for like uh if I'm going away for a week with a crew that I don't know or I'm working with for the first time, I'm not thinking necessarily about the job a lot of the time. I'm thinking about my relationship with those people, not to be too deep about it because I won't be, but just like, oh, can I spend 24 hours a day with these people? Okay, you know, because you're with those people all the time. You're in those little groups. So sometimes it's personality. It's like, you know, are you going to have a fun time? Are, do you get on with that person? It's kind of that sort of i think about that stuff quite a lot all right well uh, glenn as we kind of start to wrap things up um how can people best get in touch with you well like you found me i'm on instagram so so that's glenn 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 underscore sound so that's glenn with one n and sort of all my details are on the instagram thing so i've got a website glenn glenn glenn, glenn how many glens have i said glenn 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 glenn, glenn sound.com and my all my email and stuff's there but yeah, pile on in. If anyone wants to email me, I'll give them a free fart. I'll send them a free fart from the archives, from the sound effect archives, if you want. <laughs> if they dare. Oh. All right. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. And I just want to say thanks to Glenn Yard for being on the show today. Yeah, cool. Cheers. Thanks, Michael. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. 
If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts, and for Android users, check out Google Podcasts. Also, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.